Jesus once said to his closest followers, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's John 13, 34. We're going to explore what that means today as we finish up our summer series on the six spiritual pathways. These basic spiritual habits that help followers of Jesus grow closer to God and discover greater inner peace and more effective service for his kingdom. They're described in a lot of different ways, spiritual disciplines, life routines, habits of the heart, the things that help us connect with God in a meaningful and intentional way. And just for review, the six spiritual pathways are to pray daily, worship regularly, study God's word faithfully, give generously, serve joyfully, and today, the sixth pathway that helps us move deeper into Christ, love continually. Are you ready for that? Okay. I read a story about something unusual that happened at the end of World War I in Paris, France. The brutal trench warfare that characterized World War I left a lot of soldiers severely traumatized, and they didn't have the vocabulary back then to call it uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. But that's what it was. They said the soldiers were shell-shocked. Uh, and one of the manifestations of being shell-shocked was that a lot of soldiers lost their memory. They had a type of amnesia, couldn't remember their names or their background or anything about their lives before the war. The government had no way to identify these men because fingerprinting was, was just starting to be used. So what the French government did was they published the photos of the men in the newspaper and then invited people who were missing, their sons or their husbands or brothers or fathers, to come to a theater in Paris on a certain night to try and identify these unnamed men. The night came and the theater was, was packed with families hoping to recognize their relatives. The lights dimmed, the, the crowd hushed, and one by one the confused men came out on the stage and, and stood in the spotlight and, and said into the darkness, does anyone know who I am? Does anyone know where I belong? I mean, wow, those are two powerful questions. Does anybody know who I am? Does anybody know where I belong? Questions of identity, questions of belonging, they're so important. Questions of identity are at the root of so many of our struggles that we see today. All of us face questions of, you know, who am I really? How do I fit in? How do I define myself as a person? What is home base for me? Who do I really belong to and who really cares about me? These are complex questions about gender, about race, about beliefs, about politics. Where do I fit in? Am I in this group or am I in that group? You know, do I run with this pack or that one? You see, there's no monolithic culture in America anymore. Like Europe, we're splintering into so many different little subgroups and subcultures, what some sociologists call tribes. Because there are so many different ways people do define themselves by their interests, their hobbies, their lifestyle, their stage of life, their clothes, their music, their sexuality, their career, their ethnic background. And so the main question I want you to ask this morning is what group most defines your life? What's your primary tribe? What group, what community gives you your primary identity? Are you a chameleon who just goes along with whatever passing crowd? This is really an important question to know where we belong because, you know, neighborhood no longer defines community. Most of us rarely see our neighbors. Community is now defined by our common interests. Uh, people bond over things that attract them because like attracts like. And it's natural for people to join together in groups. We're created by God to be social beings. 
And so we connect with people over our common interests. It could be fly fishing or stamp collecting or our schools or our sports teams, you name it. Have you ever gone to a, a Jets or a Giants tailgate party? There are people who get their entire identity from their sports team. For some folks, their whole life revolves around their team. It's their religion. It's their family. It's how they spend all their money. And with the internet and our mobile devices, our sense of community is no longer limited by geography. You can play Fortnite or other video games over the internet with friends spread literally all over the world. So is the church just another organization? Is the church just another interest group? Or should it be something more? Well, let's back up for a minute and talk about what the church is supposed to be as designed by Jesus. If you're a Christian, it means you belong to the family of God. And from God's point of view, your primary identity is now that you are a child of God. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, we're told this uh, belonging is something Jesus does for us. He's the one who brings us into a new relationship with God so that we can call God our Father. We become the adopted children of God, the Father. John 1, verse 12 says, To all who received him, meaning Jesus, he gives, I mean Jesus gives, the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, there's a popular misconception that every person on the planet is a child of God, right? I mean, you've heard that. It's a way of highlighting uh, what all people have in common. But that's not really what the Bible teaches. Every person on the planet absolutely loved by God. Every person created in the image of God, equal in God's sight, regardless of race or gender or geography or anything else. And therefore, every person on the planet deserves to be treated with, with dignity and respect, with love and compassion, with justice and equality. No one is superior or inferior to anyone else as image bearers of God. But to be a child of God, that's a subset of humanity based on our response to the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. When we put our trust in him, when we give our lives into his hands, when, uh, then Jesus then gives us the right to be called God's children. He bestows that right upon us. It's not something you automatically get just for being born a human being. Jesus gives us the right to be called children of God when we put our lives in his hands. That's how we become a child of the Heavenly Father. We're born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it says in 1 Peter. Jesus welcomes us into the family of God, this, this forever family of God, because we have a new relationship with God as our Father through Christ. Now that doesn't mean we're any better than anybody else on the planet. I mean, no way. It just means God has placed his stamp of ownership on you because you turn to him in faith. He's the one who marks you as his child. He puts his stamp of ownership on you. And the good news is that there's an open invitation for everyone on the planet to turn to him in that way. Being a child of God, it's not an exclusive club. God's family is open to all who will receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Open to all who repent and bend the knee before the King of Kings. And that's what we see what happened in the early church. Back in, in the summer, during the series on racial reconciliation, I talked about how in Acts chapter 2, on the very first day of the church, the birthday of the church, more than 15 different ethnic groups are specifically mentioned as those who respond to the preaching of the apostles about Jesus. 
people from so many different backgrounds and cultures and countries from all over the ancient world, and they all became children of God on that same day. In this way, the early church was something brand new, God's new society, as J.I. Packer calls it. Talk about a melting pot, more than 15 different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, languages, slave and slave owners, men and women, all thrown together, kind of welded together in this new creation called the church, the body of Christ. And Jesus' command to them was, love one another as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The number one way Jesus wants people to, to spread his gospel and for his church to grow is through the loving relationships visible in the life of the church. That's why love continually is perhaps the most important spiritual pathway of them all and perhaps the most difficult. You know, Jesus said some shocking things. People who think Jesus was all meek and mild, all gushy love and puppies, you know, all rainbows and unicorns, I don't think they ever actually read what he said or taught. One of the most shocking things he said is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 26, where it says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I mean, wow, hate your family. What's going on here? The gospel writer Matthew records a similar time when Jesus said, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Now, is Jesus really telling us we have to hate our relatives? No. Often Jesus used hyperbole, exaggerated comparisons to shock people, to get their attention, to get his point across. And so Jesus frequently made these exaggerated statements to force people to listen. Like when he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That, that woke people up. Hyperbole, it's exaggerated comparisons. And what he's saying is that he demands, he deserves first place among all your human relationships. He demands and deserves first place in your life. More than a parent's love for their children, more than a love between a husband and a wife, above all human relationships, Jesus demands and deserves first place in your life. And that means your primary identity no longer comes from your family of origin or from your nationality or your race or your gender or anything else. All of that has to be surrendered to something greater. Something that now supersedes all other things in your life, and that's Jesus himself. All other relationships take second place compared to your relationship with Jesus. So this idea of being a child of God, that becomes your primary identity as you go through life. Does that make sense? All other relationships take a back seat to your relationship with Jesus. And it's not as though those relationships are bad or, you know, or faulty or whatever. Now, some of them might be. I mean, you, you could be in some unhealthy relationships and those need to be surrendered to Christ, maybe turned around or, or ended if need be. But in general, even the very positive relationships of family, of parents, of children, husband and wife, of citizen, of patriot, 
of being Democrat or Republican, of being Italian or Spanish or Chinese or whatever your ethnic descent, all of those ways that we might identify ourselves must become secondary to our primary identity as a child of God, a disciple of Jesus. You see, the tendency in American Christianity is to make faith so individualistic. Just me and Jesus. As long as we're tight, that's all that matters. You'll even hear people say, you know, I don't need the church in order to be a Christian. Well, they've privatized their faith so much. And no, you don't need a church to be a Christian. You need a church in order to be a healthy Christian who is seeking to please the Lord and not just yourself and your own ego. Jesus wants his children to be together. The idea of an individualistic Christianity, that does not appear in Scripture at all. The idea of individualized faith did not occur to Jesus or the disciples. They, and he modeled how he wanted his followers to live. He gathered large crowds, medium crowds, but mostly he invested himself into that smaller circle of disciples who became his primary community. That's how he lived and that's how he wants his followers to live too. And so this makes sense as to why Jesus said that his followers, his church, should collectively express a special kind of love for each other. As I read earlier from John 16, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what Jesus is after, a community of believers who begin to live out the love relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit with each other. A community where love is supposed to be the most visible quality, something outsiders will recognize as the body of Christ. And so we use these words of fellowship or community or koinonia to describe this unique bonding within the life of the Christian church. This highest quality of love, something that can be noticed by the world. But the fact is most of us are kind of scared of this kind of deep community. To, to be that connected to other Christians, well, it means you've got to let down your guard. It means revealing your true self. It means being vulnerable. It means trusting others with your very self. And that's scary because we've been hurt in the past. We're not so sure these people can be trusted. We're not so sure we want to take on the responsibility of caring for other people in that way. It would make demands on my life. It would be inconvenient. It might upset my schedule. I'm not sure I even like the people in the church all that much. But it is how spiritual growth actually happens. One of my core ministry principles is this, is that people can change significantly when in the presence of Christ they have a group experience where they feel empathetically understood and warmly accepted. Let me say that again. That people can change significantly when in the presence of Christ they can have a group experience where they feel empathetically understood and warmly accepted. That's the way Jesus lived. That's the way Jesus trained his disciples. That's the way all of the other five spiritual pathways actually come into focus when believers come together in deep relationship, when they can share their struggles and their joys, when they can wrestle with how to put their faith into practice, when they can wrestle with Scripture and what it means for life. Being connected in Christian community is the most effective way to help people know Christ better and to see real progress in their spiritual and emotional lives. That's the ideal. The real is a struggle. Because people are just people, inside the church and out. And so it's no wonder that people often expect a church to be a place of love, and no wonder people can be shocked when they see a different reality is often very different from the ideal. 
What do we find often in the church? Jealousy, anger, hypocrisy, backstabbing, gossip, just plain nastiness. Have you been in a church like that? And people come to church right in the middle of a church fight and they go, look out. It's like, you know, stumbling into a knife fight. If you expect the church to be a perfect place, you will quickly be disappointed. John White writes in his book, The Fight, your brothers and sisters in Christ are not perfect. After the first happy glow during which you may, dis- I- you may idealize them, you'll be shocked to discover bitterness, bickering, and overt hostility in the Christian family. You'll also discover that some Christians are stupid, ornery, tactless, stuffed shirts, hypocrites, and so on. Some slurp their soup or even have bad breath. But remember, God loves them even though you find it hard to. And you must be charitable enough to admit that there may be some unattractive features in your own personality. You know, people are shocked to see all the same kind of problems inside the church as they experience out in the world. But really, you shouldn't be shocked. Most of the Apostle Paul's letters were written to troubled churches. Some of them were so messed up they were downright scary. From the very first century, the church has not been a place for perfect people. No. It's a place for people who carry a lot of baggage, but who are seeking a better way, who are seeking a touch from God's hand to go in a new direction through the power of Christ. The church will never be a utopia. It will always be filled with hypocrites because the church, that's the best place to be if you're seeking to become whole. It's like complaining that a hospital, you know, is full of sick people. Well, that's the best place to be when you're sick. And that's why a church is a place filled with imperfect people. It's when people stop really seeking the wholeness and the mercy of God that churches get ugly and in some ways cease uh, being, actually being the church. As followers of Christ, we want to be moving closer to being like Jesus in all aspects of life. We all come with some emotional disconnects depending on our family history, our individual makeup, our life experiences. We all have some bugs in our emotional hard drive, some more than others, but we all do. And these emotional and spiritual disconnects, they don't automatically disappear when we discover faith in Christ. God uses other people in the body of Christ to shape us, to mold us, to help us confront our inner demons and our sins. We need a safe place. We need safe people who will encourage us to take our next step in our spiritual growth. And we need a place where God can use us to help encourage others. There's a give and take in the body of Christ. This kind of deep community, this koinonia doesn't happen overnight. It takes work and it takes time. That's why small groups are such an essential part of a healthy, growing congregation. Because people can get lost in a large church like ours. As a church gets larger, it must also get smaller. Each person needs a place where they can connect with others in a significant way. And small groups are a way of providing deeper relationships through Bible study, application, accountability, encouragement spiritual growth on a more personal level. Small groups are also a great tool for serving Christ in mission and in ministry together. And so there's no one formula for all small groups. People have different needs, desires, schedules, different levels of spiritual maturity. Some groups will meet for intensive Bible study, while others will gather just to sharing and prayer or praise. Others might concentrate on a topic or an age or a lifestyle interest or a specific ministry or outreach to the community. The point is, we all need face-to-face interaction to mature as believers. Because worship alone on Sundays, friends, it can't do it. 
We all need a deeper connection than that. Now last fall, we identified that we had 44 different small groups for adults going on in the life of our church. That doesn't include the Bible Study Fellowship, which meets in our church on Monday nights, but that's not a ministry of our church. A lot of our people participate in it, but it's not specifically ours. It's 44 groups, 411 different people participating. Now some people double dip, but at least 411 different people in all those groups. And if you add all the small groups for our high school and middle school students, that's an additional 200 people. That's a, that's a huge percentage of our congregation. We'd love to see that number increase this year. In September, we'll be rolling out many of our new small groups for the year. Men's Bible studies, women's groups, mixed groups, young adults, senior saints. So many ways to connect. A couples conference in October, dinners for eight. You know, that great simple way to dip your toe in the water and meet people and just have a meal together. Sunday school classes for the advanced, but also for beginners like Christianity Explorer that will be led by Elder Stacy Pearson. The new members class. I mean, I could go on and on. And if there's not a group that fits your schedule or your season of life, come talk to me and I'll help you get one started. The point being, we are not a church with small groups. We are a church of small groups. And we embrace this idea because of Jesus' command to love one another. We're a caring church and we're also a disciple-making church. And those two things are best done with the small circles of believers who are living out Jesus' ideal to grow together as spiritual friends. If you know Jesus, you're a child of God. And that makes you also a part of his family. That's who you are. That's where you belong. And that's what it means to love continually. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church and our commitment to help people get face-to-face -face and knee-to-knee with the opportunity to know and to be known and to grow in a safe place, in a place to be challenged, a place to be encouraged, a place where we can use our gifts to help others but also be vulnerable enough that others could help us. Lord, may we continue to do that, Lord, as we find ways to help people connect and take that next step in spiritual growth. Lord, lead us in all of these six pathways that we might kind of grow closer to you and walk humbly with you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.